0: Well, several weeks ago, a couple months ago, in fact, the Lord laid it on my heart to preach out of the book of Amos. And like many of you, probably right now, my first thought was why Amos? What's, what's the message there, and why should I preach out of Amos? Amos is considered one of the minor prophets. It's in the Old Testament, if you're kind of looking around for it. Uh, he's minor in, because he, uh, the book is fairly short. Uh, your major prophets are Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, because their books are quite long. Uh, Amos is short. But because he's, just because he's considered a minor prophet doesn't mean that what he has to say is, is minor. And just kind of a little bit of a heads up, uh, this sermon series is going to be a little bit adult-themed because the, uh, the Bible isn't a bunch of fairy tales of children's stories, which is what the world thinks it is. It's dealing with serious issues with adults in their relationship with the serious God. And sometimes uh, things need to be said which are hard to say. And Amos goes ahead and says them. And really what his whole, the overall theme of the book of Amos. And the question that he struggles with and talks about. Is the question of what makes a nation righteous. What makes a nation righteous. And he struggles with this and then he preaches without compromise. And as a result Amos made himself a few enemies. But history vindicated him as a prophet for what he said as being true. And for us as an international church, this question is, is an interesting one because we have this added twist that many of us are from different nations. We're not just one uh, group of people from the same country here. Uh, if, we, if we were, the way this would be preached would be kind of different. But I think it's best, I think it's really good that we have this multiple... Uh, multiplicity of nations here who come from different models of government different values of uh, cultural values you grew up with different things from the secular order you grew up with different expectations because this this uh, Amos isn't this sermon series and Amos isn't really talking about advocating a particular governmental model because Amos himself is preaching under the model of a monarchy which very few of us have come out of a monarchy in our background But really, he's asking the question of righteousness as a society and as a people. And as a church of IBCD here, we have a a unique, we're a unique church in a lot of ways. And one of the main ways that we're unique is that we sort of have an outsized influence. We're not a huge church. Uh, On Every Sunday morning, if you took the numbers together, we probably average about 230 people that come to church. And that includes the children as well. However, if you looked at the number of people that come and cycle through IBCD over a single year, it's probably around a thousand different people. Because we have people come; they're visiting. We have some that are here for a short time, some that are here for a long time, and they just kind of cycle through, and then they go all over the world. And we have people at IBCD who uh, have influence internationally, in the business world, in the military, in education, in the arts. And very importantly, those who are raising the next generation, we are all these people that are interacting, not just here at IBCD and then in our local communities, but we tend to also interact all over the world. And this is a pretty amazing thing because when it comes to the worldwide ideas of truth and of values and of faith, you'll find that out there in the world, there's all kinds of different values. But as people who are representing the king of kings, people who are salt and light in the world, what you take from this place to your homelands when you go and visit on holiday or if you're an uh, international business person going and running around or just if you interact with different people of different nationalities throughout your, your day here in Germany, you are a person who is truly salt in this world. It's not, we're not many but what the influence we can sprinkle around the world can be significant. And you probably, I don't know if you know it, but I hear from people who've been at IBCD who are in different places, and they were here like years ago, and they'll talk about the influence that you've had on each other and the church has had on them when they go all around the world. And if we want to be a truly godly influence, not just in our nation, but upon our in our world, and if we want to be a godly influence that is centered in the scripture and not just a system with God's name tacked on it, then we need to understand these questions that Amos asks as he faced his nation and he held up a mirror to it and he asked hard questions to the kingdoms of Israel and of Judah. And so what I'm, prom- what I'm planning to do as I go through this as the book of Amos is we won't go through it verse by verse like we usually do as we go through the book because there's just some of it that's hard to relate to. I mean, Amos is talking about people and things that we don't really have any kind of uh, way to relate to. Here's an example. I will send fire upon the house of Hazael and it will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. It's hard for us to relate to this because we don't really know what the house of Hazael is even about or the fortress of Ben-Hadad. But we will see that within the, uh, the parts that we're going to look at the Scripture, he does talk very much to our own situations and to our own hearts. So if, as we get into it, let's first look at who the person of Amos was. Who was this guy? Who was Amos? Well, Amos is a prophet, and he shows up in, in, in history around 750 before Christ, 750 years before Christ. This was during the time which is known as the Divided Kingdom. If you know some of your Old Testament history, or if you, if you don't, this is the story that there, there was a King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And after King Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was at a pretty strong place, pretty pretty wide, pretty, one of the biggest it had been. But his son wasn't very smart. His son uh, made some decisions against the counsel of some wiser people, which ended up in the kingdom of Israel splitting into two. And 10 of the tribes formed what's called the northern kingdom of Israel. So they kept the name Israel. And they're in the north. They're made up of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom is made up of just Judah and Benjamin. the The tribe of Judah and Benjamin. In fact, the term Jews comes from Judah being part of the kingdom of Judah. Because the kingdom of Judah lasted about 150 years longer than the northern kingdom of Israel. But during the time that, that uh, Amos is speaking to the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and he does both in his book, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel are actually at their, at their highest point of strength. Over the years when the split, the kingdom of Israel and Judah tended to cooperate. They got along okay, sometimes better than others. But at the time of, of uh, Amos, there were two strong kings and pretty good kings. The king of Israel was a king named Jeroboam II. And the king of Judah was a king named Uzziah. And if you remember the, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah In chapter 6 of Isaiah, he is mourning the death of this great king of Judah, and it is Uzziah. And so if you read the book of of Isaiah, which is a major prophet, he is mourning the death of Uzziah. So during the time of Amos, these two kings were in power. These two nations were fairly powerful. And they were surrounded by nations that would tend to try and break in and, and take things from them. And sometimes they won a few battles. They destroyed a few villages. But overall... The kingdom of Israel and Judah at this time were strong militarily. They were strong economically. And they believed that God was on their side. And uh, in fact, later on in the, in the New Testament, Jesus, when he's going up to Galilee, he goes through uh, what was the, the kingdom of Israel. And he goes through this area near Samaria and he runs into the Samaritan woman. If you remember the story, she says, you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on this mountain. And Jesus says, you guys don't even know what you're worshiping. So the, the, the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. The capital of Israel was Samaria. And that's why they become known as the Samaritans after Israel is conquered. And the people there are known more on the, the name of the capital city of Samaria than, are, than they're known as Israelites. So, there's the history, and you actually see some of the remnant of the history uh, in the New Testament. So, Amos was from Judah, actually. He's from the small town called Tokea. And we have a little bit of historical uh, a biography of Amos. He was a sheep and cattle rancher, he wasn't a royal court prophet. Some of, You had prophets that were part of the temple and the royal court. Isaiah, again, he's an example of a royal court prophet. That's why when we meet Isaiah, he's in the temple, and he's in a place where he's mourning the death of the king. Amos, is he's, a, he's not just a, a humble little shepherd. He's, he's, the, the words in the Hebrew give the sense that he was a landowner. He was fairly wealthy. He wasn't just a shepherd. He's a rancher. And it says that he's a dresser of trees, which it says that he had orchards that he took care of. So he's probably a man of certain means, not super rich, but certainly not on the lowest level of society. And he goes up to the kingdom of Israel. So he's from Judah, but he goes up and he goes to the court of the king, Jeroboam II. And he begins to preach. He begins to warn them. Of the coming storm. And one reason why Amos is one of the prophets that we know is definitely a prophet of the Lord is because everything he said was going to happen happened. And he starts off, and and we're not going to go through these scriptures, but if you want to read chapter one, he starts off by just blasting the surrounding countries. He lays into them in the name of the Lord for their national acts of unrighteousness. He, take, he blasts the Assyrians, which were, if you see the Assyria up there, it's called Syria in modern day. But back in the day, it was just known as Syria. Uh, I mean, Assyria. And he begins to t- just go after them because of their attempted and continually attempted conquest, uh, attempt to conquest Israel, conquer Israel. And he uses kind of a agricultural language. He says that they thrashed Gilead with sledges with iron teeth. Which is he, uh, uh, the sledge he's talking about? Is what they would use. They would bring in the grain and they would beat the grain to the wheat to get the heads, the actual grain itself, to come out. And so he uses these examples. He does this pretty often. He uses agricultural uh, examples because that's who he is. He's a rancher. He's an agricultural guy. They thrashed Gilead with sledges made of iron teeth. Then he tears into Gaza. Which was the, the land of the Philistines. And if you see on the map here. You have Philistia down at the bottom here. And uh, the Gaza Strip is there to this day. When they talk about the Gaza Strip. Uh, in, when they, in the news. It's the same area. This is where like, people like Goliath were from. He was a Philistine. And he, he, Amos goes after them. For selling into slavery. Some of the people from villages. That they would invade across the border. Into Judah and and enslaved people, and then they were selling them to Edom, which is on there you can see to the, the east there, the, the southeast. And then he goes after the this, this city-state of Tyre, who is also wiping out villages and selling people into slavery, again to Edom. And then he talks about the treachery that they were making between each other. They would make these alliances, and then they would turn their backs on each other. Then he goes after Edom. He pummels Edom. And the reason why he really gets after Edom hard is because Edom was a nation that was built from the descendants of Esau. And if you remember in the Old Testament, Esau and Jacob, who becomes renamed Israel, were brothers. And so he really goes after Edom because Edom is buying these people who were historically, they should be the brother nations, the people from Israel, they're buying them as slaves. So the descendants of Esau are buying the descendants of Jacob. And enslaving them. And so he really goes after Edom. But then he doesn't stop with that. He then turns around and he goes into Ammon. Which is another. You can see it on the map there. He gets to Ammon because there was this time when Ammon had invaded Edom. They dug up the bones of their king. And they burned the bones to lime. They burned them to ash. And he says, you desecrated their graves. And so the picture that we get is that Israel and Judah are surrounded by these nations. That are just going after it with each other. And they're fighting each other like a bunch of dogs in a fighting pit. They're just after each other the whole time. And even though the nation, the kingdom of Israel and Judah are are suffering from this, some some kind of bordering villages are being raided now and then. For the most part, Israel and Judah are the, the, the most stable nations in the region. And because all the other countries are just trying to tear each other apart, Israel and Judah cooperate, which allows them to be the most stable and the strongest nation in the region at this time. And because they are stable, because they are strong, they believed both the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah that God was on their side. But Amos has a message for Israel and a message for Judah. And I love Amos. I find him very fascinating because he's, he's very vivid in his language. He paints these word pictures, and, he, and he's punchy. He just kind of gets right at them. He's a little bit poetic, and we'll see it. He says this. So this is the passage we're going to be looking at today. This is where he begins to really talk about what makes a nation righteous. And he looks at Israel, and he looks at Judah and says, You think you're righteous? You're not says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. This is just a poetic way of saying, you're a sinful bunch. It's not just that they only had three national sins, maybe four. This is just how he, this is po- poetry in saying, you're a sinful nation. I will not turn back my wrath. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Now, remember in Judah, that's where the temple was. The the capital of Judah is Jerusalem. He says, Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept my decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed, I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel, even for four. I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledged, Back in the day, and Jesus even talks about this, if a poor person owed money to a rich person, that rich person could take their cloak and keep it. Now, they weren't supposed to keep it overnight, but they could keep it as as a kind of a guarantee of what is owed to them. And Jesus talks about this in the the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if someone demands your cloak, give them your shirt also. It was actually Jesus is talking about resisting in a kind of a uh, pacifistic way where you give them the cloak, but you, by law, weren't supposed to take everything from the person. And Jesus says, give them everything and see what happens. But he says here, they're taking the cloaks, and not only are they taking the cloaks, but then they take them to the altars, the holy places, because Samaria had all these different holy places, and they lie upon these cloaks of the people that they've taken it from and have ritual sex with the prostitutes of the temples. Yeah, it's pretty nasty stuff. And this is why it's a bit of an adult-themed book. And then in the house of their God, and notice he doesn't say the house of God, their gods, because the Samaritans had a tendency to worship a bunch of other gods, but so did the people in Judah. They drink wine taken as fines. The wine that had been given for sacrifice that was meant to be used in the temple, they're just taking it themselves. It says, I destroyed the Amorite before them. Though he, the Amorite, he's talking about the nation of of the Amorites. Though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt. And I led you 40 years in the desert. To give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons. And Nazarites from among your young men. And Nazarite was a person that was pledged to be in a place of kind of purity as they served God. Uh, In the book of Judges, Samson was supposed to be a Nazarite. They weren't supposed to cut their hair. They weren't supposed to drink alcohol. They weren't supposed to be around the presence of death. Now, if you read the book of Judges about Samson, Samson broke every Nazarite vow that you could possibly break. The story of Samson in Judges is actually a story of a tragic hero who was very arrogant, but he was meant to be set aside. It's not the same as someone who is from Nazareth. Jesus is from Nazareth. He was called a Nazarene because he's from Nazareth. That is not the same thing. I actually heard a university professor make the mistake of saying, you know, Jesus was, uh, he he really couldn't have been the Messiah because he was a Nazarite, and yet he he drank wine and all this stuff. It's like Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was from a town called Nazareth. Samson was a Nazarite. He says, I raised up prophets from your young sons and Nazarites from your young men. Is it not true, O people of Israel? declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine. In other words, you made them break their vow. And you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. Again, it's sort of an agricultural thing. He knows how heavy a cart can be when it's loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet footed soldier will not get away, the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Pretty harsh. And remember, he's saying this to two kingdoms that believe that they are righteous because in their region, all these other nations are tearing themselves apart and they're strong at this moment. They have a strong economy. They have a strong military. They look like they have a future ahead of them where they are going to dominate their region. And Amos comes and tells them, you're no better than the people around you. And the hammer of God is going to come down on you because you are not a righteous nation. Which brings us back to the question then, well, what really makes a nation righteous? Well, first, we're reminded that all nations are under God. And you see this more in chapter 1. But all nations... Are under God, And this might not seem such like a revelation to us today. We're, many of you, many of us, even though we're from all these different cultures, believe there's one God. But in the time of Amos, this was something that Israel and Judah struggled with. They struggled with belief in one God and that their God was the supreme God. What they tended to believe was that Philistia had the God of the Philistines that the Ammonites had the God of the Ammonites, and that Israel and Judah had their God, whom they called Yahweh. And it's important for them to understand that all nations are under God because the way they viewed the world back then was if a nation went to war with another nation, say Syria goes to war with Ammon, and Syria conquers the Ammonites, the way the people would understand this was that in this spiritual realm, the God of the Syrians had defeated the God of the Ammonites. And so the people would say, well, we lost the war. But what really happened was that in the spiritual realm, our God was defeated by this other God. And the problem with that is for the nation of Israel is that God is going to use the Assyrians to punish the people of Israel for their sins. And then about 150 years later, he's going to use the nation of Babylon To punish Judah for its sins. And they will be crushed. And they're going to be taken into captivity. And we know this because it happened. We have this in the Bible. We have the historic fact that this takes place. Israel is destroyed by Assyria. And then about 150 years later, the Babylonians come in, destroy Judah, and take the people into captivity. And it's the prophet Jeremiah, in case you're wondering where these guys fit in. Jeremiah is the prophet during the destruction of Judah. And if the people think that there's all these regional gods, then how are they going to interpret them being conquered? Are they going to look at themselves and say, Ooh, we've got some issues and God is punishing us. Or are they going to say, well, I guess our God was weak and our God was defeated by the God of the Assyrians or our God was defeated by the God of the Babylonians. If they believe that there's all these different gods then they're not going to ever look at themselves. They're going to say that their being conquered was a failure of their God instead of a failure of themselves and their sinfulness. So Amos wants them to know there's one God, and he's in charge of everything. And when judgment comes upon you as a nation, it's not that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who creates all things, was defeated. It's that the God of Israel is punishing you. In a sense, Amos, as a prophet, as he's speaking for God, is saying, God says to them, I raised you up. Because he talks about that. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you the, the victory over the Ammonites. I raised you up. And I will tear you down. Me. No one else. So that's the first thing that Amos wants them to understand about what makes a nation righteous, is an understanding that all nations are under God. And this is true to this day. There's only one God. All the nations are under his power and his influence, whether they recognize him or not. And secondly, Amos reminds them that a nation cannot be righteous before God and ignore God at the same time. You can't be righteous before God and ignore God at the same time. Israel and Judah, like all the nations that surrounded them, were very religious people. They had their temples. They made sure they made their proper sacrifices. They had their special days off. They had their holidays and they didn't have to go to work that were related to their religion around them. And yet as a people, even though they had all these trappings of religion around them, temples, special days off. All these things, the people didn't acknowledge God with their lives. Sound at all familiar? It should. And so Amos points out, and this time he points it out to the kingdom of Judah. He's he's, he's in the court of Israel, but he points out to the king of Judah. He says, for three sins and for even four, I will not turn back my wrath because they have rejected the law of the Lord. Judah's sin is that they rejected the law of the Lord. And why is it particularly a sin of Judah? Because they were the place where the temple was. Their capital was Jerusalem. They had the temple. And they reject the law of the Lord. They have not kept his decrees because they've been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. If you read the book of Ezekiel, which is written after the people are taken into captivity, one of the things that Ezekiel often talks about is that within the temple, they had actually erected altars to other gods. It had gotten that bad. They had erected altars to other gods within the temple. And Ezekiel... When the people are taken into captivity by the Babylonians, they're going, oh, why? Ezekiel says, I'll tell you why. Because you claim to worship the one God, and yet you've rejected him. And you have all these different things that you worship, and you bring that into the temple. And Ezekiel, he gets, he gets salty with them. He says, you have these things, your altars, and then he, he uses the word basically for poop. You have these altars of poop, and you've brought those into the temple. He's the, the, the Bible isn't a bunch of children's stories. Let me tell you, you get into it. And then for Israel, he says this about them. They trample on the heads of the poor and it's upon the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. He's talking about kind of a temple prostitution there where father and son, they use the same prostitute. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. So while they have this, these altars, these places of religious significance to them, next to those altars, they sin heinously. In the house of their God, they drink the wine taken as fines. So the laws protecting the poor were being ignored. Ritual prostitution was taking place garments and wine taken by the rich as a down payment for money owed by the poor were being used flippantly and blasphemously. And this is just the beginning. And so what we learn from this is that God will not be mocked. And God is not just about following some ritualistic religion. God is a living God. And if we think that Just following certain rules and rituals appease God and then we go out and we act in any kind of sinful manner that we want is going to be okay with God. We're fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves as individuals and we're fooling ourselves as nations. And many of you come from, like I come from, a nation where faith is a big deal to many people. But we can't separate our faith and act one way and then act in a way that is sinful in our secular world or secular society and expect God to be okay with that. And that's what Amos is saying to them. God's not okay with this. You can't come to his temple and worship him and then oppress the poor. Steal from those who are in need. Abuse faith. Cynically manipulate the idea of faith and expect God's will to be God's grace and his favor to be upon you. You're dreaming. And God will not be mocked, He will bring down the hammer. Now, sometimes people read the Old Testament and they say, Oh, God in the Old Testament's mean. And He's like, I like Jesus, but I don't like the God in the Old Testament. You know how long? God waited for the people of Judah in particular to get their act together. And I think he waited longer for them because the temple was there. Do you know how long the prophets start talking about things are going off the rails before Babylon finally conquers them? How many years that is? It wasn't two or three weeks. It wasn't a few decades. God waited 400 years for the people to get their act together. He is a patient God. When we read it in the Bible, it looks like it just kind of happens immediately because we don't really understand the time, the time span that's between someone like Amos and someone like Jeremiah and someone that's like Ezekiel. But it's 400 years. After Israel was conquered, he waited 150 years for Judah to realize, well, if it happened to Israel, it could happen to us. But they didn't. They stayed in this place of thinking that we can follow through these rituals and yet act in such a way that is against the heart of God and God will be okay with that. And then he says this the righteousness of a nation is directly linked to how the vulnerable are treated. People sometimes think that caring for the poor is kind of a political stance, it's not. Caring for the vulnerable in a society is very much right out of the scripture. Look what he says to Israel. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel, even for I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, they don't care about people. All they care about is money. They sell the righteous for silver and needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and they deny justice to the oppressed. In other words, they deny justice to the people that can't stand up for themselves. They keep them underfoot and keep them in their place because of power and because of money. And this is not pleasing to God. Sometimes... We as believers, and depending on what your background is and stuff, sometimes we think helping the poor is like something that is more of a political agenda. It's not. Jesus talks about it. Jesus talks about helping the poor, caring for the poor. God loves the poor. That widow that only had two, two pennies to give to the temple, Jesus says she gave more than all these folks that were throwing in tons of money because out of her poverty she gave. God loves these folks. And we live in a broken and sinful world. You say, well, why doesn't God just make them all rich and lift them up? Because we live in a broken and sinful world. And also because God is wanting to see, are we going to live as righteous people? Regardless of what nation we're in. Are we going to live as righteous people that bring in hope and light? Are we going to lift them up? Are we going to have the effect of God transforming our life be so profound that we then reach out and do what Christ would do. And in the time when Amos is talking to the nations of Israel and Judah, the answer has been no. But don't forget out of the book of James, for example, this is how James, who's the brother of Jesus, half-brother I suppose you could say, says this, he says, Religion that, our, that, our God, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after widows, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted from the world. How a nation treats the vulnerable is a sign of their righteousness. And many of us come from nations where in our past and even in our present, we don't treat the vulnerable very well. And we come up with our philosophies around why we shouldn't treat them well. Oh, you don't want to, you know, give a man a fish. You only feed him for a day. Teach him to fish. You feed him for a lifetime. Yeah, that's all great. But while you're teaching them to fish, you need to also give them the fish because they have to live to learn. And there's all kinds of ways that people want to approach this. And we'll get more in depth as we go through Amos. But as we close, we need to remember that God hasn't changed And the standard of righteousness for a nation before God hasn't changed. And the best thing we can do for our various nations that are represented here is to not turn a blind eye to the problems that we know exist in our nations. If you're German, you know the problems that exist within Germany. I'm an American. I'm pretty aware of the problems that exist within my country. If you're Nigerian, you know the problems that exist. If you're from Eastern Europe, you say you're from Serbia or something, you know the problems that exist. And if you want to be a blessing to whatever nation you're from, then don't turn a blind eye to it. And seek to hold your nations to the standard of God. And you say, I'm just one person. Yeah, you're just one person. But you are one person. You have some influence. It's not about politics, it's about following Christ. And I think one of the things that I've learned in my years at IBCD from being here is that there can be true peace. There can be a true love that transcends culture, that transcends a lot of the cultural values that might have been given to us. That transcends race. That transcends all these things that we tend to be hold up as differences. It is possible. But what makes it possible is to first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these other things will be added unto you. And we've talked about it. IBCD. We don't have a lot in common when it comes to our cultures. We don't have a lot in common when it comes to the values necessarily we grew up with. But we hold to a common savior. And because we hold to this common savior, we've seen the impact. We've seen that we genuinely get along. And we do better than get along. We generally love one another. And we don't let these things get in the way. Now, none of us are perfect. Sometimes we bring in some things. But I've always found it fascinating, especially in some like, uh, places where there's an election going on. And they tend to be the elections tend to fall along tribal lines. I remember a couple years ago, there was an election in Kenya. And I remember watching two brothers. One was of one tribe. One was of the other. And if you read the, the news articles in Kenya, these elections were very hotly contested. And there was fighting going on as a result. And these two guys, they were brothers. And uh, I, was, I listened to their conversation. They were going back and forth. And they were talking about the issues in their nation. But they were talking about it as brothers. They weren't talking about, I'm this tribe, you're that tribe. They recognized they were of different tribes. They recognized that they didn't have, uh, they weren't necessarily on the same political side, but they recognized over all those things, they were believers. What an amazing place we could be, the world would be, if we could really biblically follow who Christ is. And as a church, as IBCD, I think we have a unique place in the world in that we can show this and we can be witnesses to the possibility of what God can do. If our unity is found in Christ, the one who paid the price for all of our wrongdoing, all of our sins, regardless of where we come from. If we will find that focus in Jesus Christ, we find our grace and our hope in Jesus Christ, then we can be witnesses to a broken world who are fighting over every little thing and say, you know what? We can rise above this. We can really know true peace. We can know true love with one another that cares for one another. Regardless of regional differences, regardless of cultural differences, regardless of tribal differences, we can know these things if we keep our eyes on our Lord and our values are based on what He values instead of what we tend to value as human beings. So this is going to be the book of Amos as we go through this, as we dig into this, as we look into what it is that makes a nation righteous. And I want you to take it As a citizen of whatever country you're a part of. But also as a member or attender of IBCD. So you can, while recognizing the differences that may divide your country. And again, I speak from a country who's very divided right now. I mean, they're talking civil war in my country. The United States. Who would have thought 20 years ago? And if we can keep our eyes on Christ instead of on the things that divide us. And stop attaching Jesus' names to our politics. And just follow him. Then we can be salt and light in the world. And we can change. Maybe not you go in and you change the whole city. But if you can change the people around you. Help them see things differently. And they can change people around them. We could have a greater influence than our numbers would indicate. Not just in my nation, but in all the nations that are represented here today. That's a God-sized vision. But that's how God does things. He took 12 fishermen and a few tax collectors, and he changed the world. If it's within his will and we're willing to follow, he can do some mighty things with this church in the forest called IBCD. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for... Prophets like Amos, who on one hand, people could say, well, this was written almost 3,000 years ago. What, revel- what revel- ah, relevance does it have to our lives today? And Lord, I think as we look at it and when we hear questions like that around us, pray you give us the wisdom to point to the scriptures and ask them, are we any different? Are we any different? And if we're not really that much different, do we expect God to really act any differently toward us than how he acted toward the people who were his chosen nation. And Father, help us to be salt and light. Help us to keep our eyes on you. And Lord, the the mirror that is held up by Amos to the nation, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, would also be held up to our own souls. Where we run the risk of also being religious, but functionally atheists, As we go through life, not really involving you or being involved with you. And God, help us to be willing to repent, not just as nations, but as individuals first. So that we can glorify you and be, however you want to use us, the people you want us to be. Lord, we thank you for this unique opportunity you give us at IBCD to be a truly international community. That we can live together and love one another and see that it does work with you at the center. And God, in this, may we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.